Good morning, good morning. Well, it's the morning for me. Don't know when you're listening to this. You might be listening to this at night or in the afternoon. And in which case, good afternoon, good evening. How are ya? Um, yeah, I'm trying to record this a little bit earlier in the morning, but it is starting to get close to midday now, just because it's so darn warm. Not that I'm complaining, I like the warmth, but uh, I'd rather get this done earlier. I do have a fan on in the background because it is warm, so if you can hear the like hum of the fan going, I apologise, but I ain't turning it off because I will melt. Speaking of melt, what melts? Witches melt. So what film are we going to do today? That's right, ladies and gentlemen and everything in between. We're going to do The Witch. Um, Robert Edgar's... Edgar or Edgar? I think it's Edgar. Robert Edgar. Yeah, I was right. Robert Edgar. Um, his first directional feature-length debut. Um, he did a couple of shorts before that. You may also know him from uh, The Lighthouse. Featuring Willem Dafoe and Robert Patterson, a.k.a. Batman. And The Northman, which recently came out. Both of those films are awesome if you haven't seen them. And if you have seen them, you know full well that Robert Eggers has a very particular style. So, without further ado, let's get this shoe on the road and start talking about The Witch and how gosh darn terrifying it is. So we get an interesting opening scene with the witch. Um, it opens on the wonderful Anna Taylor Joy's face. Anya, sorry, Anya Taylor Joy's face, because um, she's sort of like the heartbeat of this film. Um, you know, she's sort of more the the rational one. Um, if you've never heard the phrase "heartbeat of a film" before, it's you know, it's sort of like the purest person. Um, you know, the happiest person, the most, not necessarily the most innocent person, uh, but just kind of like the least morally corrupt character, maybe something like that. Um, <clears throat> that tends to be who it is. Like, for example, Tarantino described Margot Robbie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as the hobby of the film. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so we get uh, an open shot on her face, and then. It's it's got um, <laughs> the deepest voice in Hollywood, Ralph Innocent. It's got his sort of opening. It's not really a monologue. It's because he does interact with another person in it, um, but it's not quite a duologue. Anyway, I promise I will wake up. I'll have my coffee in a minute, and then I'll wake up, and then I'll have more coherent, more coherent sentences for you. But he has the deepest voice in all of Hollywood, and it's. Yorkshire-based as well, so it sounds proper intimidating. Um, sorry for everybody from Yorkshire that I just offended with that shit accent, but there we go. Anyway, so all the all the shots in the opening sequence there, um, they're all stills, and they also aren't revealing of the father, Ralph Innocent's character. Um, what's his character's name? William. Yeah. They aren't. They don't reveal his face. We get like an opening shot on Anya. Then we get an opening shot on her little brother, who is fantastic in this film. Um, Harvey Scrimshaw plays Caleb. He's wicked in this film. Um, and a few like there's a shot of the back of Ralph's head. There's a shot of the court, like judges and stuff. There's a shot of the spectators watching this sort of court hearing play out. Um, there's a couple of shots 
but all the all of Ralph's and Anya's family sort of stood in a line um, opposite the like judges in the court. Uh, and there's a shot like from Anya's perspective, looking down towards her father, who's at the opposite end of the line of them, and he's completely like blurred out. So, what Robert Eggers is doing there is he's like building intrigue as to what their predicament is and also who they are. So he's given us the shoe in by giving us the heartbeat of the film. You know, Anya Taylor Joy, she's got these sort of like big eyes you know these big sweet eyes so straight away you're like oh this is a person we can you know root for because they don't look evil <laughs> do you know what i mean it's a subconscious thing that humans will do it's like um i'm not trying to patronize her and call her a kitten she's a strong independent woman but you know like when you see like a kitten or something you're like ah, oh, i like this kitten you don't know why you like this kitten you just like the kitten do you know what i mean that might be a really terrible example, but I don't care. Like I said, I haven't finished my first coffee of the day yet. Um, anyway, so, yeah, he's 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 sort of building intrigue as well, because where we've heard Ralph Innocent speak, but we haven't seen his face yet, we're like, who is he? What's what's going on here? What's happening? What's what's occurring? Um, so it's just an... And, I like the fact that all the shots are just completely held and still as well, because I'm going to build on to this later on in the podcast, no doubt, but it's sort of, it's, when I say it's building intrigue, it's because it's allowing our imagination to do the work, which doesn't mean that Robert Eggers is lazy, it just means he's not spoon-feeding his audience. And there's a very small, like, travelling montage, um, I don't really want to use the word montage, but that's effectively what it is, um, because the family get kicked out of the parish, and they uh, then have to, you know, go find a new pot, new plot of land to build a farm on. So, as they're going along, there's a this happens a lot throughout the movie, but this is our first sort of taste of it. Is there's a sort of building of a a soundscape to like terrify you? <laughs> so it starts with sort of you know, like minor key or like sort of, I don't know, is it like off note sounding like strings, you know, like violins and things like that, um, that just start to build up and it just makes you feel really unnerved and really like, oh, I don't like this, this is creepy kind of thing. Um, that starts to like build up. And then what Robert Eggers does a lot throughout this film as well is he'll cut to a new image that will just make you uh, make you confused. You know, uh, you just sort of like, huh? Well, what are we looking at right here? So he cuts to an image of like. Uh, so okay, sorry. So what he cuts from is all the family sat around a campfire in pitch black night, surrounded by woods, and you can't see anything else that around them and behind them that isn't like the only things you can see are the things immediately illuminated by the fire, which is just the family's faces everything else around them is completely black and that's when the music starts to reach uh, a certain sort of fever pitch of like building up that tension that soundscape that i was speaking about so because you can't see anything around them this is one of the points I'm, i was making about he lets your imagination do the work for you so you're like oh my god is something behind them is something going to get them because the music is implying that they're in danger um and then it then it cuts to the father being face down on the ground just like face down in the dirt so you're like what happened is he asleep 
was he drunk? Is he dead? What happens? Turns out he was just praying. Um, they just filmed it from an angle where it looks like he was dead. Um, but then, one of the best uses of soundscape in this film, um, they're all the family are in a line on their knees, like, you know, bowing and praying and things, being grateful for this lovely meadow that they've just found. This big, tall meadow. Um, and... Then the cameras, the cameras behind them, looking at their backs as they're on their knees. And then what it does is it cranes up and over their heads and starts to zoom in on this uh, tree line at the edge of the meadow. The uh, big forest tree line, very dense, thick forest. And that can be in itself, you know, if you're not a particular forest goer, or maybe you're scared of the dark or something, because there's all these shadows from the trees, that in and of itself can be a little bit disconcerting like oh I might get lost in there I'm not a woodsman um so but then as it does it the similar sort of unnerving string quartet I don't know if it's a quartet the strings and the music and that starts to build up again but then it layers in all these like really odd chants like these you know you can only imagine it's some sort of like paganistic you know uh guttural not guttural um uh, what's the word for it, man? Like, animalistic and primal kind of, like, chants, you know? That just... And also, maybe maybe chance is the wrong word, but either way, if you've heard the film, you know exactly the bit I'm talking about. Um, and it, it's sort of, it's you know, it's like ghostly in a way, and it just builds up and builds up and reaches a fever pitch, and it's very unnerving. It's, it's really, really unnerving to hear. And all you're looking at on screen is trees, but because of all this music, you're like, oh, this is unsettling. I don't like this. So what Robert Edgar, sorry, Robert Eggers does a lot in this film is just hold on images for ages and put some sort of unnerving thought in your mind, either with the music and soundscape or, you know, some previous suggestion of, you know, danger or something like that. And then just let your imagination run wild. And it's brilliant. And because I've got a really crazy imagination. So I was watching this film like absolutely cacking my trousers, Paul. And then again, to sort of uh, continue the notion that where they've just moved to is a little bit dangerous, but then remind us that uh, Anya Taylor Joy is the heartbeat of the film. Yeah, there's a cut to her in one of the houses praying, right? And. She's wearing mostly sort of white or off-whites, light colours. Um, and on her, there must be some sort of soft white light just, you know, to sort of illuminate her in the scene. And then everything around her, like the corners of the room, she's framed directly in the centre of the screen with her head and shoulders. And then, you know, behind her, we can see the corners of the room and the back wall and things like that and the floor because we're sort of tilting down, you know, suggesting that she's on her knees because she's praying. She is praying in this scene. Um, and where everything around her is dark, it's sort of like representative of that she's the shining light within this, you know, moment of darkness or this period of darkness in this uh, in these families' lives. Um, but then also the darkness around her, to me, was suggestive of that there's still some sort of danger. So then after... Um, and Anya Taylor Joy, her character's name is Thomason, which the first time I was watching this film, 
I couldn't make out what they were calling her. Tomlinson, Thomason, but it's Thomason, um, I believe. Let me double check that on IMDb. Phone, recognize my thumbprint. Yeah, Thomason. I hate when your phone does that. It's like, no, this is not your thumbprint. It's, like, it's the same thumb I've had all my life. Recognize my thumbprint. Let me in, please. All oh, the troubles and tribulations of first world countries, eh? Anyway... So yeah, uh, after her little monologue, or where she's praying and things, we get a few shots around the farm, you know, sort of letting the audience know uh, what the family are doing there, you know. I believe they call it chucking corn, uh, which is where they're, like, hacking corn off of the um, the bits that grow it. <laughs> you know, uh, and a few other bits and bobs around the farm. And then, to remind us of the, I suppose, impending danger, we get another... Uh, sort of held shot on the same tree line as before uh, the the tree line they were sort of praying opposite before um, but this time the camera's a little bit closer and I believe it was moving in on it ever so slightly like really really slowly sort of tracking towards it or zooming in towards it with a slight score in the background like a very tiny score in the background not anything as, as you know grandiose as uh what we had before with the chanting and stuff, where it was like, oh, 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 nothing like that. Um, but it's reminding us of the danger. Uh, because then we cut to what I'm going to refer to as the boo scene, which is the scene where Anya Taylor-Joy is in that meadow, big tall meadow, uh, in f- where, with the baby. Um, and she's going, boo, like covering her eyes, and then going like, boo, like... You know, it's New England's peekaboo, basically. Uh, but she's doing it right in front of that tree line, so... Because we've already established twice there that there's potential danger behind it. As an audience member, you're like, mm, Be careful, you have a baby. Then we start to get really creepy. So, as she's doing her whole block my eyes, peekaboo at you type thing with the baby, the... Every time she does it, the baby smiles. And I don't know if this baby's a brilliant actor or if they just got really lucky with an expression change on the baby. And then then in the edit room, they were like, oh my God, this kid's amazing. Because every time she does the peekaboo thing, the baby's like laughing and smiling. like, <laughs> Or however babies laugh. They probably don't laugh like that. And then um, the second to last time she does it, the baby's expression changes and it looks concerned, which is... Spot on, because the next time she go, she covers her eyes and goes, boo, the baby disappears. She looks and the baby's just not there. And the camera pans up from her perspective to sort of look in the direction where the baby may have gone. And then we get the first of a reoccurring theme whenever the witch has been about. There's like a rustle of a sort of a small... Uh, like plant just in front of her and then the rustle of uh, it's immediately followed by the rustle of a slightly bigger plant right on the edge of the tree line so that that like in the foreground and then in the background indicates that there's been a movement in that direction right um so it's good to let the character and the audience know that that's where the baby's gone but that rustle is a reoccurring theme throughout the movie whenever the witch has been about we hear it a lot so it starts to become one of those things that when you hear it, you're like, oh, shit, she's back. Great. Stealing kids. Um, 
so then as uh, we get our first glimpse of the witch, we don't really get to glimpse her. What we get is a big wide shot of um, somewhere in the depths of the forest. And then because it's a big wide shot, running, you know, only like a, I don't know, maybe the middle sixth or the middle fifth of the screen, we get this this like red riding hood sort of hooded figure which is obviously carrying a baby like running across the screen and the camera doesn't move it just stays there and lets her cover the distance of the screen which this is getting towards what i was saying before about like not doing too much let letting the audience um you know take charge of what they think is sort of like happening or occurring and then it cuts to another real densely sort of thicketed shot i don't i don't know if thicketed is the right word but the next shot is like super dense of these sort of like what do they call it do they call it haunted trees when they're all kind of like you know they almost look like they're burnt because they're so kind of like dead or or dying and gray and there's like thorns and sharp stuff it just looks like scary trees okay scary trees and then because it's such a sort of thick um I don't know, a thicket, <laughs> it's a thick thicket of trees, we can only barely see the witch's sort of figure moving behind them, coming towards her, but we start to hear her, we start to hear her sort of breathe, and it's like a, I don't know, a creepy kind of breath, and then things really do get disturbing, um, we have the shot of this innocent little bubba laying on its back, not knowing what's happening, because it's just an innocent little bubba, and that the baby is it's from it's from the top of the baby's head, sort of looking down at its feet, and its feet are kind of out of focus, but its head is in focus. Um, so if you imagine that, you know, you're looking, the baby's on its back, you're looking at its head, the feet are just out of focus. So then anything that's sort of south of the baby's feet is also out of focus, right? So we see this little baba, you know, minding its own business, and then from behind sort of south of its feet out of focus we see this uh it's, we don't see the whole thing we just see like you know the sort of waste of this obviously haggard looking shape start to move towards it and it runs its finger along the baby's like uh chest and then a knife appears and it's horrific and it's creepy and it's we don't see anything bad happen to the baby, but it's obviously implied, um, and it's just oh, <laughs> ugh, what a scene! Because all the camera does is just stay there, and we have the innocent baby, the creepy thing moving behind it, it creepily run its finger along its little chest, and then a knife appear, and like just that is enough. Because your imagination's running wild. You, before it cuts away, your imagination's like, oh my dear God, what is this haggard crazy bitch trying to do to this kid? That's freaking disgusting. Let's shoot her with a bazooka. But, and then when it cuts away, you're like, oh dear God, what did this crazy haggard bitch do to this kid? Let's shoot her with two bazookas. Uh, and then it gets worse. Um, we cut away and then we see some more horrific shit. And it's not even 10 minutes into the movie, Robert Eggers. What are you trying to do to me? And what he does so well is he shows you, like, Robert Eggers, I mean, is he shows you, like, just enough to let you know 
what you're watching is horrible, but also let your your imagination take charge and and make it even worse for yourself. I'm only twenty minutes in, and it's ten minutes into the po- t- twenty minutes into the podcast, ten minutes into the film. Jesus Christ! So, um, we see like it, it cuts to like a creepy. Everything's creepy in this film. Oh, Jesus Christ! It cuts to there's something. Okay, I'm just gonna say it. There's something creepy about old naked people, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, the witch is old. She has an old person's body. And what we see is a shot of her naked from behind. And so you can sort of just see, like, part of her back, her ass, and then part of her thighs. And then, like, she's got this haggard, wiry, just not well-conditioned-looking hair hanging down her back that's pretty much covering, like, a lot of her shoulders and her face and stuff, which is, you know, presents that sort of... the element of the unknown, which in itself is creepy, because you're like, oh, no this is creepy, what does she actually look like, you know, she, whatever, and she's like, looks like she's churning butter, from behind it looks like she's got one of those, um, what do they call them, yeah, it's a butter churner, isn't it, um, that the Amish people would use, uh, so it looks like she's churning butter, and it holds on that shot, zooming in very slowly for ages, as the music starts to build up, and there's more like, you know, sort of creepy chanting, and off, note and minor key violin bits and but there's also like a going throughout something about repetition like that um i don't know it's very does something to the audience uh and then cut to another weird angle where we can see like part of the witch's hip but then we can see what she's been churning which just looks like there's a load of blood and bones in there and we can see her sort of like rubbing it on her hip and stuff so we're not again not seeing the full image of the witch which is making the audience go oh my god why is that all that blood in there was that the baby like why is she rubbing it on herself and then we get another shot where she looks all like golem like it's it's a completely black shot so these other shots have been sort of a little bit orange in hue you know because of like candlelight where then the next shot is completely black and we just see her in the sort of like bottom left of the screen again can't really see her face but can still see that she's naked she's like lying on her side she's rubbing a stick with i think it's the blood um and she's sort of blue in hue because she's like illuminated by the moonlight and again that that shot is like just enough so that we can kind of see what's going on but we kind of can't so then as an audience member you're like you're trying to figure out same as what i was talking about with that opening scene of the film where you're like what's going on why are they in court who are these characters what are they doing you're like what is what is this witch doing why is she being creepy we still can't quite see her when you cut it's the fear of the unknown exactly like i was talking about on a different podcast with things like jaws where it the fear of the unknown where you can't quite see the shark it's scarier so you can't quite see the witch or see exactly what she's doing it's scarier because your mind takes over and does all the work for the director again not that the director's lazy it's a brilliant technique to use um, and all this sort of culminates in her walking like naked out into the moonlight with a big soundscape, you know, sort of up in the uh, the scare factor for the audience. It's just a it's a very creepy, very unnerving scene. Wait, sorry, I just got that wrong. It doesn't culminate with her walking out into the moonlight. I I paused it and I thought that that's what it was, but I rem- remembered it wrong. What it is is a still shot of a like crow or 
some sort of blackbird uh, sat on a branch directly in front of the moonlight. So it's sort of like, you know, um, silhouetted and circled by the, the moonlight. But it it's right zoomed in on the back of the crow's head and then it zoom, it sort of pulls back, like tracks back, zooms out. And then it's apparent that it's a bird on a twig. Um, but because I paused it right when it was zoomed into the back of it, I thought it was the witch for some reason. <laughs> but it's not. Either way, it's still creepy. I'm really doing my best to not talk about every single shot in this film, but it's such an excellently shot film. So, um, moving on, there's a, you know, a few scenes in between um, whatever the last one I was speaking about was, <laughs> and this one. Um, it's when the dad and the eldest son want to go hunting in the woods, right? So the first shot we see of them hunting in the woods is one of those massive wide shots again where we see this stupidly thick, dense forest. Um, and it's just pretty much a held shot. And then way in the distance of it, pretty much only just visible. You know, they, they do disappear behind a couple of trees every now and then, but it is apparent that they're right there. Um, is the father and son walking away from the camera further into the depths of this uh, forest. And we can faintly hear them talking, you know. So the fact that it is this big wide shot and the fact that it's just held on there for a minute with them walking away, for me, it let my imagination run wild in the sense that I was thinking like, oh no, they're like walking into danger or they're also like somewhat like there's not a lot of hope for being able to help them because they're so far into this like dense forest um you know they're it's like being in in deep ocean water you know like you're at the mercy of the the sharks or the the currents or whatever it might be like you know you're kind of you're a bit fucked and um, that's the sort of sense of danger that I got from it and all it is is just a held shot really wide with a slightly unnerving score just absolute brilliant craftsmanship so also as well in this film i feel like robert eggers and you know his cinematography or some sorry cinematographer um or you know even the location scout must have had a real keen eye for finding things natural things that are um creepy looking so like there's a upturned tree you know a tree that's fallen down and all the roots have upturned um you know, so there's all these like jagged edges and sharp snapped bits of root and, and branch and things. Um, and that, I've always thought that that looked creepy. Like, slight tangent. I used to go on a lot of walks with my cousins and my granddad in the local forest near where they lived. And I always thought that that was really creepy. Like, you know, some upturned trees, like the root section, looks creepy. It's all these like sharp jagged edges and things. It just looks odd. So they, as they're walking through the forest, we cut to just a shot of that upturned with like a dull hum in the background of like this unnerving score to keep the audience sort of on edge that something not nice is around the corner. And yeah, just it sort of slowly zooms into it. And then they walk into frame and you know it's apparent that they laid a trap there and that's why they're walking onto it. And the other thing I wanted to speak about as well was how awesome the the tone of this film is and as in the color tone so what a lot a lot of people might not know um with films is color grading is really really important 
uh, and it happens in pretty much every film. I mean, if you can always tell when a film hasn't done it, and when I say a film hasn't done it, it will normally be like a low-budget film that your mate made and they couldn't afford a colour grader because I don't think I've ever seen a film or a TV show where colour grading hasn't been done. Uh, so what what colour grading will allow you to do is sort of manipulate the tone of the film. So, for example, as they're walking through the the forest here and throughout pretty much all this film, I'm pretty sure, the tones are very deep, like... Um, like as if there's an overcast of clouds or as if everything's been rained on. You know, like if you have tree bark and it's dry, it's sort of like, it's like a dusty kind of brown, I suppose is the best way I can describe it. And then when it gets rained on, it's more like a, a muddy, deeper kind of brown, right? So that's what this whole film looks like. It looks it looks sort of dull, dull not dull in color, but it looks like overcast and almost depressing and kind of dark and deep in tone. Whereas um, if you've seen a show like Ozark, whenever they're in the Ozarks and not in Mexico, the the color grading and the tone of them in the Ozark area is all sort of like bluey. And it's like it's not quite normal colors. It has like this weird kind of blue sort of tone to it. And then when they go to Mexico, everything's very bright and sunny. So the tone sort of changes to like a more uh, orange Um I don't know, it, it's kind of hard to explain without sort of being able to show you visual examples, but if you know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just start, when you're watching things, start looking at the tone of what, of what is, you know, being shown to you. I think as well Robert Eggers just throws in a load of, like, unsettling imagery just to continuously keep you, like, on your toes. So there's just a random shot that doesn't sort of... I think the only thing it adds to the story is reinforcing the fact that this family's struggling for food, like their crops are rotting, the hunting's not going well. So they have a chicken coop, and your Taylor Joy sticks her hand in the coop to pull out an egg, drops it on the floor, and it cracks, as eggs do. And there's, it's not, you know, a, an egg yolk and an egg white in there. It's literally like a partially formed chick. Uh, and it's, you know, covered in blood and stuff because it's growing. Uh, so we just hold on this like unfortunate image of this dead chick now covered in blood for a little bit and that's it that's what the shot is and it's just adding more unsettling things just to keep you sort of like I don't know in a suspended state of dread I suppose so fast forward quite a bit now to when Thomason and Caleb decide to go to check out that trap to see if there's any food there um and they end up getting split up because of that creepy bunny rabbit. So we've already seen the rabbit twice. And it's becoming apparent that it's a bad omen. Um, I believe that it's the witch shape shifting into a rabbit. Um, but it's never sort of revealed exactly if that is what it is. Or if it's just some sort of bad omen. Or if it's a minion of the witch. Whatever it is. Let, let the audience members decide individually. Anyway, so... They're coming back from their successful gathering of an animal that was trapped in the trap. And the, it's quite, you know, it's bright and sunny. Like I said, it's still got the those tones of it sort of being dull in colour in the sense of, you know, like deeps and sort of almost like a depressing hue. But it's, it's still daylight, so it's still quite bright. Uh, and then 
the rabbit appears, the dog chases the rabbit, Caleb chases the dog, um, the horse that they were on gets freaked out by the evil presence of the rabbit, bucks and Anya Taylor-Joy off of it, and she sort of gets knocked out. So then we fast forward in time a little bit in that day, because the sky gets a lot darker and a bit more overcast, which sort of suggests that it's gone from, you know, like early morning or afternoon towards early evening uh so then we get caleb obviously lost because he's yelling for thomason or anyone that can hear him on his own looking scared with his gun that's way too big for him so it makes him look uh you know like ill-prepared kind of like he's clutching at straws to defend himself kind of thing um so yeah already he looks a bit you know, uh, vulnerable, that's the word. Uh, so the camera starts wide on him and then sort of slowly tracks in towards him, um, sort of not too high above the floor, which makes it look like the camera is almost like a predator stalking him. So that adds to his sort of vulnerability, uh, you know, it adds to his predicament, as it were. Uh, it's just a great use of that, you know, having the camera sort of act as like, a stalking predator, if that makes sense. We get a few uh, other sort of like similar shots that I mentioned before when Caleb and his dad were going hunting of like, you know, sort of wide shots of them disappearing behind trees and stuff. And we get this a lot with Caleb as he starts getting more lost in the in the forest. You know, like big wide shots running through trees. The shots are just held on there with the music getting more and more tense. Um, which, like I said before, it's... It, him running through the depths of these like this thick forest is really similar to like someone sort of being lost at sea it just looks hopeless and looks like it's going to be a ball ache to get out of um and then the music starts to uh amp up as well you know we get the the what do they call it like the sort of see the minor key or like off key sort of tones building up and everything um and it keeps cutting back and forth between him being lost and Anya Taylor Joy being lost and when she's lost we can faintly hear her family in the background calling out for them so it kind of gives her a sense of hope and then when it goes to Caleb we can't hear anyone calling out for him so it sort of reinforces that he's completely baggered um, there was one point though where he starts like climbing over and through some like, you know, real sort of dense thicket, like climbing up and almost like climbing up a tree kind of thing to get through to a place. And I'm like, did you do this on your way here? No, you didn't. So why are you doing it now? It's obviously not the direction you came from, but you know, he's dumb. But as he's climbing through this, uh, thicket, getting all tangled up with his gun and stuff. I think it, it's sort of just done to reinforce that, like, he's kind of helpless, you know, because he's struggling to manipulate the gun through the branches and he's struggling to climb it. He's just, he's a fish out of water. Um, but I guess the reason he's running that way is because he's pursuing the rabbit, right? So then we get one of those cuts I was talking about earlier where it's a cut to an image that sort of throws you off. So it cuts to... It, it, to what he's looking at what Caleb's looking at 
and we see like again a kind of dirtied shot in the sense that it's dirtied by all these like branches and twigs and leaves and things so it's not the clearest image and then we see like the back end of a rabbit like hop through a gap and then off to the side and it's not until the rabbit goes off to the side you're like oh that's a rabbit initially when it cuts to it you're like what is that shape moving and then or at least i was anyway um it kind of throws you off and it only stays there for a second and then it cuts back to caleb so it's just like little flash it's it just sort of confuses your brain and and keeps you sort of guessing and then because you're not getting any like definitive answers or like definitive footage and you just have this sort of suspended sense of like dread and impending danger for Caleb and the music's amping up and all these different things assaulting all of your senses like visually uh, and with uh, sound and then with your imagination as well it's just is creating this like horrible atmosphere and for me at least it was allowing my imagination to just absolutely drive me up the wall and then we get uh, a shot that the, this formula is used quite a lot throughout this film where we see the character and we don't see what they're looking at until a little bit later to you know add like i was saying like i've said a lot already sorry that sense of the unknown you know the fear of the unknown and the the imagination so you get caleb walking looking very scared lost confused concerned um He's walking towards something and then eventually the camera cuts around and we see what he's looking at and it's this hut. It's this dark, dingy little hut in the middle of the forest looking very creepy, smoke bellowing from a chimney, obviously suggesting that something's in there. Uh, and it just holds on that for ages, slowly tracking towards it to you know indicate that it's Caleb walking towards it. And then a foot appears from the doorway and the witch steps out. And we know it's the witch because she's wearing that red robe that we saw her snatch the baby in, right? So costume department, well done. Um, so she appears, and but she looks young and attractive. And the actress, um, what's her bloody name? I believe she's a, either a former or a current Victoria's Secret model. Um... Let me just find her name quickly. What is your name? Sarah Stevens plays the young witch. Um, she does a really good job of half looking sort of, it sounds weird to say seductive because Caleb's obviously a young kid, but that is kind of what she's doing. It's suggested earlier on in this film that Caleb's starting to find women attractive, right? It it's suggested before. So the witch being, you know, supernatural in power will probably have a sense of like his uh I don't know, his pheromones or his like mind state or whatever it might be. So she's part seductive, but then she's also part reassuring in a sense of like, Oh, don't worry, you're safe now. She doesn't say anything, but you kinda get that vibe. And then despite you know, showing those two sort of uh vibes, she then also has another vibe of like creepiness like she sort of smiles and like tilts her head down in a way and then because the way that she's lit when she moves her head sort of like tilts her head down we get these shadows appearing on her face and that makes her look really creepy and scary but yet because she's sort of you know she's so well, i imagine like banshees if you don't know about 
no, sorry, not banshees, like mermaids, where they would sort of like seduce sailors into the depths of the water. It's like she's, and they would, you know, get them in a trance and things and then seduce the sailors and then drown them. So even though she looks a little bit creepy and a little bit dangerous, because of that sort of seductive aura that she has, she's like pulling Caleb towards her. So even when she looks creepy, he's still walking towards her. And eventually she plants a kiss on his mouth, which is just a bit weird because she's way older than he is. Um, but then as she does it, one of her hands looks normal. It's like, you know, caressing the side of his face looks normal. And then just as it's about to cut away, this other creepy hand like pulls the back of his head, like holds the back of his head to her. And it's a creepy old witch hand. And then it cuts away. And all the while this is happening, the music again is like amping up, getting really intense and creepy. It's just a very, uh, you know, creepy off offsetting scene it's um it's disconcerting so as uh caleb comes back after being lost the family think he's pretty much gone there's a little row about you know are they gonna look for him what's happened to him blah 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 um muggins uh thomason goes out to tend to the goats just before they all go to bed we hear the sort of scuttle of the witch, but then it turns out it's Caleb, um, naked and in the rain, um, half dead. Um, so they take him in, they start tending to him, the mother's saying a prayer, all that sort of stuff. And the reason why I wanted to quickly give the context of that is because then we go from that to another one of those cuts that is like uh, disconcerting, you know, it sort of throws you off. So the cut is. I think it's like the third time we've seen the dad chopping wood. But it's it's high up over his shoulder looking down. Uh, from sort of Not from his perspective, like behind his perspective, looking down at him chopping the wood. And it just cuts straight to him, like chop, you know, cuts on a chop. Like I've said before in other podcasts, cutting on a point of movement or sound is an effective way to do it. It's the easiest way to do it. Um... It's just sort of a rule of editing. I can't be bothered to go into it. Um, so yeah, he. But because the shot is like this high, obscure angle looking down. Sorry if you can hear those people outside. I've got the window open while I record this pod. Normally I would shut the window, but it's so darn hot. But I might shut in a little bit if they carry on. Uh, anyway, so because it's a an obscure shot, like you know, it's it's high up above, looking down from an angle over his shoulder. It's odd. Uh, and then combined with the the lighting and the tone of the scene, it, right, so it's at night, it's moonlight, so it, there's a sort of silvery blue hue on everything. It's raining, which gives that sort of darkness to it, you know, like makes everything look a deeper color. Uh, he's wearing some sort of like off-white, gray kind of uh, robe, so that with the moonlight in the darkness... And then the, the darkness of the soil and everything, it all has this hue, which initially when it cuts straight to it, it you you don't, you don't can't quite distinguish what's what straight away. It takes you a second, and then because it's from an odd angle, it throws you off again even further. So it's just another disconcerting thing that Robert Eggers does to, like I said before, keeps us on our toes because we're like, what is this? What are we looking at? What's happening? It just throughout this entire film you're not given a chance to be comfortable there's always something throwing you off 
I'm going to go on to, uh, spoiler alert, Caleb's death scene, um, which Harvey Scrimshaw does so damn well. I don't know if I've ever seen him in anything else. He's still a young fella. Um, but he was wicked in this particular scene. He's he's great in the whole film, but in this scene in particular, he was wicked. Whenever there's a childhood... Childhood? <laughs> Whenever there's a child actor that's actually legit good, it's always really good. You know, like... Um, the kid who plays John Connor in Terminator 2, for example. Uh, what's his bloody name? Doesn't matter. So, as um, Caleb's, you know, chanting, uh, is it like a prayer or some sort of like devil sacrament or sac- sacrament? Is that the word? It doesn't matter. He's a lot of the the angles of him doing it will be sort of with the camera, kind of. He's laying down on the floor, and the camera's kind of like just above him looking at his face. So quite a lot of the time with that angle, you sort of see, you know, like up his nose. Um, which just gives him like a really creepy, kind of disturbing expression. And the way that he's lit as well, like he's kind of lit from the window behind his head, but, you know, up above behind his head. So it's just an odd angle. So it's not a, a like a portrait sort of angle it's from this weird below shot so all the shadows and things that we get on his face are just very disconcerting it's it that and the fact that you know we know he's sort of you know under some sort of witchy spell or possessed or something and he's chanting all these kind of demonic phrases and and he's quite clearly not present with the people in the room like he's at some point he starts speaking to god and speaking about being brought into his warm embrace and things it's just creepy so the use of the camera angle and the lighting and the awesome performance from um harvey absolutely brilliant scene um and then it as he's dead and it's apparently he's dead and the mum's grieving we get a a full shot of everybody in frame you know him in the middle on the floor the mum just behind him cradling his head the dad stood up to the right uh and then uh anya taylor joy sort of kneeling to the left of Caleb and then the other twins are laying down on the floor behind and then the mirror uh, sorry not the mirror the window is in the middle and it's the only source of light and it's a really nice symmetrical scene in the sense that the framing the way that the camera is looking at the framing of the building and the uh the window that's all symmetrical the actors in it aren't so much but you know I've spoken about symmetry in films before it's just a brilliant shot again the scene doesn't do a lot it's a lot of still shots or like sort of tracking slowly in on Caleb's face and things but it's very powerful scene. I really like it. There's a, a great scene between um, Anya Taylor-Joy and uh, Ralph Innocent after Caleb sort of died when he kind of like calls her out for being a witch and he's like, just admit it to me that you're a witch because throughout the film there's a lot of like speculation as to whether she is the witch or not and she's like crying and pleading with him and like begging him to believe her that she's not a witch and I can only imagine that that's what it must have been like you know you you hear stories and things about like women being accused of witches and being like burnt at the stake and stuff when a lot of the time they're purely innocent and stuff it's just you know especially back in that era of time it was an incredibly patriarchal society and very much you know what the man says goes kind of thing and women don't have anywhere near as many rights or say as men so they're you know sort of very easily um uh you know 
accused you know what i'm trying to say like it's kind of it's kind of messed up so like when someone goes you're a witch you're a witch it's very hard for the woman to be believed or taken seriously that they're not so she's like begging and pleading basically for her life because she probably knows what the implications are if she's you know wrongly accused of being a witch and she probably would get like burnt or something like that um so it's pretty heavy but i was just like wow oh my god is that you know without getting too deep on it is this scene also in and of itself a bit of a social commentary about uh, you know believing women about other things you know like be it rape or anything like that i don't want to get too dark so sorry if i'm you know triggering a few people here or whatever but i thought it was a very powerful scene not just because of it's her sort of trying to deny witchiness but also it, that could be a social commentary on on other accusations towards women so um my point is, powerful scene, powerful cinema. Good work, Robert Eggers. So moving on to way in the evening when um, the dad has gone a bit cray with all the stress of the situation and decided to lock all the children in the barn and board up the windows with hammers and nails. Um, so we've got the two twins in there, and Anna Taylor Johnson, Anna Taylor Joy even, sorry. Anya Taylor Joy, yeah, that one. She's in the barn as well. With uh, Black Philip, the goat that they've, that the twins keep singing to and speaking to, and Anya thinks it's uh, Satan that they're communicating with vicariously through this goat. They're all locked in there, um, and then we have like a big wide shot of the the farm. You know, it's all dark and there's moonlight, and then we hear the rustling that that rustling again, which as we've known before normally means the witch is afoot um and quite often when that rustling occurs it's followed by the rabbit appearing or sometimes when it occurred it was when caleb returns back after being lost and a few other things like that so the first time i watched this film when i heard that rustling i was like oh the rabbit's going to appear in the barn that that's what that will be because every other when i when i first watched it every time i heard the rustling i was like oh no we're about to see the witch oh no here she is she's gonna be around the corner or whatever it might be and she never was i was always wrong it was always like the rabbit or something else so then this time in the barn i was like oh great you know the rabbit's gonna come back nope wrong um we do get a witchy reveal but again before we actually get the reveal um Robert Eggers lets our imagination run wild, right? So there's lots of shots of like the the twins like cuddled up in the in the barn, and they're like leaning up against one of the barn walls, and obviously it's made of like wooden panels and slats and things. So there's loads of like gaps, some wide gaps, some thin gaps, but you can sort of just about see outside. So the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, oh my god, is something gonna walk past the the gaps in the wood? Uh, behind them or is a hand going to come through because there's so many shots where it's just still and holding on it that you're expecting something to happen it's creating that suspense and that tension just by doing it like i said before he lets your imagination do the work for you and it's if you've got a big imagination it's a scary film so then uh yeah there's a shot back on the twins again after that we've seen the mother um imagine that she's seen caleb Shot back on the twins again, a little bit closer than it was before, still with all that like gappy wood behind them. And we hear the again, and then we hear a thud, like something's landed on the roof of the uh, barn, and the twins look up to it and start like breathing heavily, like they're scared. And we sort of hear something like start to move down 
you know, the through the barn kind of thing. And the music's like the violin, uh, you know, not violin. Yeah, it might be violins, but like some sort of strings like as the thing like jumps on the on the roof. So it's starting to layer in tension, okay, with this soundscape. Because the shot is just the twins sat there and then everything else is done with the sound of the music. Uh, so then it's apparent that the witch is in the barn, right? So the the kids... This is exactly what I was talking about before when Caleb's walking up to the, the witch's little hut. The two twins stand up and they're walking towards camera, obviously looking at something, fear on their faces, and then, like I say, it's a lot of us just looking at them while we our imagination runs wild with, oh, what are they looking at? And then it, pan it cuts around, and again we see, like, the old, haggard naked witch but just the back same as like when she was churning butter at the start not churning butter she was churning up a baby but anyway we see that and it's only partially lit there's like a little bit of the moonlight per um peeking through the the cracks in the wood of the barn and everything um which obviously isn't moonlight it's just someone outside with a a white light or you know lighting rig set up outside or whatever tricks of the trade and then the camera starts to like slowly zoom in on her and it looks like she's like maybe taking a chunk out of the side of the goat and everything but you can't quite see because where her head is it's particularly shadowy um but the music starts to amp up there's like a sort of um like a high pitch noise creeping in kind of like a kettle boiling but not quite um and it just zooms in closer and closer to her and then as it gets to a certain point her head stops moving as if she stopped eating and then you're like, uh-oh, she's about to turn around. And then her head raises up a little bit. You're like, yep, she's about to turn around. And then she snaps around and it looks like she hasn't got any eyes or teeth. And then she like does a witch cackle at the kids. They start screaming. Uh, and then we cut to the mum who thought, because I uh, didn't really cover this a minute ago, but she was hallucinating seeing, seeing Caleb and the baby that went missing. Caleb hands her the baby. She thinks she's... Um, nursing the baby with her bosom uh, and then it cuts to her sat there laughing hysterically mimicking the witch cackling and she's not feeding the baby there's a crow sat on her lap eating her bosom what a film robert eggers what have you done to my mind and my senses you have ruined them just want to point out as well i'm pretty sure there's only one jump scare in this entire movie right so if you're if you have a horror film and you only have one jump scare, you have excelled, especially when that film is actually scary. Because, I mean, a lot of people find jump scares a bit hacky and a bit of a cheap way to get scares and thrills. Um, so when uh, it's when the dad leaves the barn, uh, sorry, leaves the house in the morning to check on the kids after they've spent the night in the barn and that, and uh, he gets um, absolutely done in by the goat, the, the black goat with the horns. Um... It's all quiet and peaceful. Well, it's not peaceful. He's looking at, like, the two dead goats um, and, like, you know, a broken-up barn and stuff after the witch has, like, wrecked it. And uh, he just gets, like, speared from the side by this goat and then Anya screams at the same time. So, you know, you have him getting hit, her screaming, the music and everything like that. It's just, you know, layers. It all counts towards this jump scare, but it's the one and only... I'm pretty sure it's the one and only jump scare in the film. So uh, well done, Robert Eggers, for not relying on uh, 
cheap tricks. I don't mind jump scares. I think they're quite effective, but a lot of people find them cheap tricks. So well done for him to not rely on any of those. Uh, so right near the end of the film, um, Anya Taylor-Joy's sort of passed out on the, the kitchen table, left the door wide open behind her, cut to her waking up. It's, it's dark now, it's midnight. The door's still wide open, which, you know, shows that she's not been protected uh at night so you get that sense of like peril anyway she goes outside big wide shot uh initially the only source of light is a faint bit of moonlight other than that it is quite dark but it's an outside shot of like the barn and and one of the gates and the pens where the black goat is which as we know it's been suggested that that goat might be a vessel for satan uh so she walks out candle light She's wearing white. She's the only... The moon's not in screen. There's just a sort of shimmer of moonlight on the floor. So other than that, she's the only light thing on the whole screen. Everything else is black. The tree line is black. The barn is black. Everything's dark and black. The goat is dark and black. She's the only thing wearing white, and she's got a candlelight. But because... So she, you know, looks innocent and that kind of thing. Uh, and then where it's quite a wide shot, again, we do get that sense of, like, her sort of, you know, being lost at sea in a bit of imminent danger and that kind of thing uh, and as well the music is again amping up adding some layers bringing that sense of peril unnerving us and just creating that uh, that sort of sense of danger so then we actually get to meet black philip and uh you know the goat formerly known as black philip so this shot is pretty simple but effective because once again, as I've said a million times, it's playing on um, the audience imagination, filling in a lot of the blanks, right? So it's just a head and shoulders close-up of Anya Taylor-Joy, lit only by candlelight. And she's got her eyes transfixed on Black Philip, and she's asking him to speak to her the way that he would speak to the twins, because the twins said that they used to communicate with him and things like that. So she's asking him if he can understand her, wants a reply from him, just as she sort of gives up and breaks gaze from looking at him and goes to walk away. We hear this really creepy whisper come f just all over the, like comes from sort of every angle. So what I mean by that is like sometimes um, if someone's, off left of screen they might project the sound only through like the left-handed speakers uh, or the right-handed speakers or you know it that sort of can create a, a, a geography as to where people are you know using the sound dispersing through a different way which is why it's always great if you have a really good sound system at home but you know, the best example is you know when you're in the cinema and there might be like a gunshot and it will only sound like it's coming from like one corner of the cinema speakers kind of thing um that's you know so simple way to explain it that's basically how it works but this whisper comes from like all of the sort of sound outputs it's a really like all-encompassing whisper and it's very soft but very creepy um and it's apparent that it's a uh, black philip and he starts sort of luring her in with like what what does she want what like sort of selfish desires does she want does she want to live lavishly does she want to see the world these kind of things and uh she's like well what do you want in return and he says does thou see a book in front of you and then we cut to the image of this book and then we hear this like 
big deep footsteps so we see like these dark boots move behind the book and then when we cut back to Anya Taylor-Joy in that exact same shot all of a sudden this shadowy dark figure moves into her left circles around behind her a creepy like gloved like dark black gloved hand appears on her shoulder like finger by finger and then his face sort of comes into frame over her left shoulder but we barely see his face at all you can barely make out that it's a person there it's just all shrouded in darkness and everything so there where there's absolutely no light or like in in the person's costume because like i said you know dark boots dark glove dark cloak dark hat there's and where she's got all the sort of lightness on her we just get the sense and you know and we know it's the goat is a vessel for satan it's very apparent that this is an evil figure uh, and then there's a big booming cut to you know big sounds uh, sort of like boom happens um not boom like explosion just a big boom massive wide shot Anya Taylor-Joy way in the distance walking into the forest that we already know is creepy as shit she's nude at this point and we see her from behind so the only thing sort of illuminating her pale white skin is the reflection of the moonlight and then we've got Black Philip the goat walking behind her so things are starting to amp up and get pretty creepy so then as she's like walking through the woods um we hear like a faint whisper by the way as well with her sort of being nude with her long hair flowing and us kind of only seeing her from the back it is reminiscent of the times that we've seen the witch it looks very similar visually um so you're starting to think oh maybe she's being a bit witchy um and then as she's walking through the woods the soundscape we hear these whispers of like chanting and stuff and then all of a sudden, a really loud chant of like several people just booms in through the audio. And that was quite unnerving. Um, and then we see her approach these, uh, it's, I don't know, there's like maybe six or seven women sort of on all fours around a giant campfire moving in strange contortions and and chanting and yelling and just being all feral and uh, and primal about it. And they're only lit by this massive booming campfire in the middle and she just sort of walks over to it entranced. It's, uh, it's pretty intense. And then to cap off this final sequence, uh, we get, uh, you know, the, the witches start levitating and then we get sort of close up on Anya's face. Uh, again the only light is the fire um, so she starts to levitate as well and I think it's the first time since the baby went missing that she actually starts to look joyful she's like enjoying sort of this levitation and this uh, primal witchy moment um, and every now and then when she tilts her head back to sort of like laugh up to the sky because the light from the fireplace is then sort of like you know below her we get similar shadows and disturbing looking angles and things as to what Caleb had when he was dying um yeah and then she levitates and we get a great massive wide shot of uh her body in line with uh this massive great tree trunk um so it's not quite symmetry but you know that's in the center of the frame uh this massive tree trunk she's all the way near the top of it with her body in line with it and she's kind of got her arms out a little bit Christ-like um uh, and the music is all amping up. There's all these oh, chants and stuff. And then it cuts, fades to black. 
and then you get a kind of Blair Witchy message appear uh, just before the credits start to roll saying that a lot of these uh, a lot of the dialogue a lot of the story and everything was inspired by um, actual written documented folk tales and experiences of people you know in that kind of New England era um, it's a brilliant brilliant film I think this might be the longest podcast I've ever done and one of the shortest films I've done a podcast on there's just so many layers and intricacies and just brilliance to this film it's fantastic if you like horror or you like art house or you like just absurd weird films um i would recommend the shit out of this one brilliant film um would recommend anyway that's that i don't want to ramble on too much longer we're already like an hour and five minutes in so um thanks everybody um I've tried to make the podcasts as available as they can be, but I'm assuming if you've listened to this, you've figured out where you can find it. Um, please, wherever you are listening, please review it, subscribe to it. Um, you know, you don't have to give me five stars, but I'd like it if you did. Uh, subscribe to it so that you don't miss a post. And just do anything you can to support your boy. Follow the Instagram page, uh, which is movie mondays dot with luke pickett or is it movie mondays with dot luke pickett it's one of them you'll find it um but yeah just uh interact with us on social media i say us it's me i do all of this myself anyway peace and love have a good weekend have a good week have a good life bye